With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. I'm Chloe Maidley, and welcome back to the podcast. On this podcast, I speak to professional athletes, coaches, physique competitors, dietitians, nutritionists, and leaders in the field of health and fitness from all over the world. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you like, subscribe, review, and leave a comment to let others know about everything we've talked about. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram, where I'll announce what's coming up on the podcast and other great content too. I'm at Maidly Chloe. Thank you so much. Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. So as a big fan and follower of Dr. Eric Helms, if you still haven't listened to my podcast episode with him, please do. I stumbled across today's guest somewhat by accident. Paul Hoff is a sports and exercise scientist who lectures at Oxford Brookes University. He works with professional athletes, amateur athletes, organizations and media outlets on all things exercise science, performance and fitness. He's just written a book, which we're going to talk about today. And I'm very, very excited to have him on, pick his brain and have you guys hear everything that he has to say. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thanks, Chloe. It's uh, good to be here. Thanks for the kind intro. Nah, it's great to have you and and you've got a big, beautiful brain that I can't wait to put on full display. Um, so, okay, I guess first things first, you just want to introduce yourself to my audience and explain a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. So um, my background, I wanted to get into sports science and like most sports scientists, I'm a failed athlete. I wasn't good enough to become a professional. <laughs> <laughs> so I went down the route of trying to work in sport and... Um, I did my um, undergrad degree at Brunel in sports science. And then I um, was a PT, personal trainer for a while uh, before going back into academia. So I, I joined St. Mary's University, which is a sports science technician. And then gradually I started to get more into teaching. And um, we had a performance lab there uh, where I was working with athletes and members of the public um, as a sports scientist, um, a lot of uh, athletes from motorsport as well. And then this summer I moved to um, Oxford Brookes University in, in a similar role, so lecturing and doing some consultancy as well. Yeah, I saw on your website you've got some pretty impressive international athletes on there. I was like, oh, I would be, I think I would be quite nervous. Who did I see that I was like, wow, Andy Murray? I was yeah. like, that's insane. It's, yeah, it's... it's- we were quite lucky in that respect. It's more a case of being in the right place at the right time and, and kind of making connections. And the sport science community is quite small. So if you kind of work with a few athletes and a lot of it is word of mouth. But yeah, there were some big athletes where, um, yeah, they turn up at the lab and it's uh, it's quite strange because <laughs> you're like, I'm used to seeing you on TV. <laughs> and now like, yeah, yeah, right yeah. in front of me and you're a normal person. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I love that. I mean, I have nothing but like respect. My when my husband played professional rugby, he was that guy. He was the guy that would just basically take part in everything and anything that he could that could potentially possibly in any way make him better. And obviously then I've seen like the the opposite of that form of athlete, just having been with him for so long, who literally do the bare minimum, but they're so talented that they just fly. And we actually had this debate on um on a podcast episode I did with him, this like there are certain types of athletes who I find phenomenally impressive and then certain types of athletes that I'm like, no, you're just ta- you're just lucky. You're in the right place at the right time. But I mean, you've worked with some incredible people. I think the first few questions I have for you are really for my audience. So things that I really think that they would benefit from listening to you talk about and kind of where they're relevant, where they're not relevant for different different clients, different goals. The first thing that I actually really wanted to ask you about was energy systems. I get asked this a lot by my clients, and I'm not going to lie to you. For most of them, it's not really relevant at all. For some of them, it is. Can you just talk about the different energy systems that our bodies use to fuel different types of activity? Okay. um, So when we need to do muscular work or or exercise, uh, our body uses a molecule called ATP, and this stands for adenosine triphosphate. So basically, it's often known as the currency because we need that to fuel all Um, metabolic processes so to sustain life basically so the body actually only has really limited stores of ATP so it has to what we call resynthesize or make its own ATP and this is what we call the the energy systems so we've got a a short-term energy system that gives us ATP really quickly but the downside of that it doesn't last very long and you might have heard of like the lactic acid system or the creatine phosphate system and essentially these systems work Quickly, they give us energy rapidly, but they're very limited. So they can uh, only sustain muscular work for up to two minutes. And that's one of the reasons why if you were to go and do sort of an all out sprint, you start to slow down. So the energy system we use most of the time is the aerobic energy system. And aerobic just means with oxygen. So what our bodies does is this is why we take in oxygen through various uh, number of complex metabolic steps the oxygen is used to resynthesize and create as much ATP as we need so that's kind of a whistle-stop tour um, essentially <laughs> two, two different types uh, anaerobic without oxygen short-term and aerobic where we use oxygen and that can produce lots of energy um, and that's exactly what we're using now at rest I love that. Nice, short, sharp, simple explanation. Okay, so considering these different energy systems, also kind of how different energy systems are kind of uh, a function and fuel different activities. What would be kind of bog standard dietary advice that you would give different types of athletes? So, and, you know, just touching on the aerobic and anaerobic systems there. So let's say for a long distance runner versus a power lifter, what would you say, okay, like these are the kind of things that you need to consider and this is the kind of fuel that you need to be getting into your kind of diet? It, it really, it does depend on that. Yeah. I know that really annoys people, but um, <laughs> it, it is important to to have like the context around this because it does depend like what level of athlete. So for example, if... Um, you'll just have basic fitness goals. You train maybe two or three times a week and you do mostly aerobic or endurance type training. You probably don't really need to be thinking too much about things like carbohydrate loading and um, <laughs> taking on more um, fuel uh, during exercise. Whereas if you're a more serious 
endurance athlete and you're training five, six times a week, um, maybe doing double sessions, then your carbohydrate and fuel intake becomes more important, particularly if you're doing high intensity uh, training sessions. If you're an athlete which is more involved in strength power sports, so short duration sports like uh, sprinting or even just weight training, then again, it, it does depend how many times you're training per week. So in general, the more times you're training, or the more important nutrition becomes in terms of when you eat and also what you eat. But as I say, like some of the more sort of complex sports nutrition discussions on things like carb loading, supplements and that type of thing, that's not particularly necessary for sort of just general recreational yeah. training purposes. So the reason why I kind of wanted to ask you that is because I know it's it sounds weird that I wanted you to answer questions that in the end I was going to say it's actually not that relevant to especially my audience was because I wanted to just obviously with what I do, the kind of coaching that I do, it's very physique based. Um, and it's also just very kind of gen pop. I'd like to lose a little bit of body fat based. So the reason why I asked you those questions was to kind of lead on to what about physique athletes specifically? So let's just quickly talk about muscle building when it comes to building as much muscle as humanly possible, if that is the goal. And I think I've got a fair few listeners <laughs> who have that goal. Um, what would be your training and nutrition recommendations for somebody who was really looking to increase muscle mass? So someone that's looking for what we call hypertrophy or increase in muscle size. Uh, two key considerations. The first one um, would be total energy intake. Um, so building muscle is what we call an anabolic process. So it takes energy. Um, and if you're not consuming enough en total energy overall, then there's there's little sort of raw materials for the body to work with. The other really important consideration is protein. When muscle is built, it's through a process called muscle protein synthesis. And that's just the creation of new proteins which are added to the muscle. That's essentially what makes the muscle bigger. So protein intake is really important um, when it comes to building muscle. And in general, um, depending on the amount of times you're training, anything from 1.6 grams up to 2.2 grams, and that's per kilo of body mass, is typically recommended for people that have hypertrophy or muscle growth goals. So the thing you have to do firstly is, is get a broad estimation of your energy requirements. So there are loads of free uh, online calculators where you can just input your basic information like your height your weight and age and it will give you a rough idea of your sort of, um, resting metabolic rate or um, basal metabolic rate so that's just the amount of uh, calories or energy you need just to maintain your current body size so you need to add to that and there is a little bit of trial and error with this um, and some debate actually some some people say that you can you can gain a lot of muscle um, just by increasing protein intake and not really modifying energy intake. Others will say, you know, the, the classic bulk of just eating loads. <laughs> the answer is probably halfway in the middle. I think it's it's difficult to build a lot of muscle mass um, if you're not actually increasing your overall caloric intake. And that's not to say it's impossible, but it's probably a slower process. But then you don't want to go to the extreme of like the so-called kind of dirty bulk where you just eat yeah. <laughs> whatever you want, whenever you want, just to get the calories in. Yeah. 
I love that. And I, you know, I really like it how you give like really <laughs> short, sharp, evidence-based, factual answers. And I mean, I've done a, a a whole podcast episode on muscle hypertrophy. So everybody who hasn't listened to that, listen to it. But yeah, absolutely. Um, I would definitely be <laughs> having done both and being a woman who finds it incredibly hard to pack on the muscle. I, I mean, typically for my clients, I would say if hypertrophy really is the goal, then I typically will give them kind of 10% calories over what their TDE would be and hope that every kind of few weeks we see a very small, you know, every couple of months, see a very small increase in weight because you don't want to pack on the fat like at the rate of knots. But then at the same time, I, yeah, I would like to think that in order to assist your body's ability to add mass, you need to be fueling it properly. It is an expensive process in terms of it. It actually takes... As I mentioned, it's, it's anabolic, so we actually need energy to create that new tissue. If you're not increasing energy intake, and first and foremost, I'll make this really clear because sometimes the discussion of nutrition, people forget about the training part of things. And <laughs> yeah, that's, the stimulus. <laughs> that's yeah. the most important <laughs> aspect is the actual <laughs> stimulus. I mean, these are all sort of like we're, we're going into grams per kg of protein and stuff. It's all kind of academic if you're not training on a regular basis <laughs> yeah and i have had people um work with clients like that and like, I'm, I'm not gaining enough and the, the diet you know is not perfect but it's it's meticulous but there's not enough of the stimulus so yeah. that process of building muscle is is through muscle protein synthesis so the yeah. the trigger for that is tension or, or lifting weights so once you've done that then the um you need to put the the fuel in the body to kind of fuel the, um, that anabolism, Water. that growth, which is yeah. protein and energy. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's a, it's a melting pot. And I think, yeah, I think I did. I think I did say this in the intro of the hypertrophy podcast is it's, it's a perfect melting pot of stimulus from training, muscle protein synthesis from, you know, protein intake, rest, recovery and progressive overload. And it's, I think, I think I introed it, but I love, I love how you just kind of nailed that. And, so just to kind of finish off this kind of section of questions that I have for you, what about fat loss? Because I think there is a huge misconception out there that fat loss requires specific foods and or exercises, and it just doesn't require either one of those specificities at all. I really wanted you, Paul, to just explain the basic principles of fat loss to my audience and why questions like what exercise is best for fat loss and what foods are best for fat loss just isn't the right question at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th this is a, a huge can of worms, <laughs> quite possibly <laughs> the biggest can in, in the fitness industry. I'm on Twitter and um, you'll Ooh. frequently see me <laughs> getting into, um, not arguments, but I guess debates with, with people on this because it is, it's really topical in terms of, there's a lot of ideas out there of kind of what is the best diet and what's the most effective diet um, for losing body fat. Uh, <laughs> but like you alluded to, there's there's many, uh, like all roads lead to Rome type thing. Um, there's loads of different approaches that work. But in, in fundamentally is that you do need to create an energy deficit, which basically means that your body is using more energy than you're supplying to it. And this is known as the energy balance model. So when we're um, not losing or gaining weight, we're in energy balance. But when we're um, losing weight, um, hopefully body fat, that means that we're in a negative energy balance. 
the easiest way to create that negative energy balance is through your nutrition. So taking in less energy than you were previously. Probably definitely heard the phrase, you can't outrun a bad diet. Um, that's not strictly true. I mean, I've, I've seen athletes with terrible diets uh, lose a lot of weight just because the amount of activity they do. That's not recommended. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just, it just means that it's possible, but um, for most people, uh, it's not a good idea. Um, so the best way is is to find a diet, and you know this is nothing new, uh, nothing groundbreaking, that which is sustainable that you're able to comfortably create that energy deficit. Now the reason I say that's pretty contentious is because there is a, another sort of hypothesis or theory that. It's not so much about energy, it's more about kind of the makeup of the diet that um, is the determinant of fat loss, uh, specifically carbohydrates. And um, I've recently been actually in sort of a bit of a back and forth with um, uh, an author called uh, Gary Taubes. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. He's um, he's wrote quite a few best-selling diet books and he's a proponent of what's called the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. Oh, of course, yeah. Gary gets into... Uh, to his credit, he, he's not one of these that kind of just blocks people. He he um, sort of engages yes, in discussion. And um, uh, essentially, the, that's the other school of thought is that um, if you just reduce your carbohydrate intake or minimize it completely, then there's less insulin in the body, which is one of its roles is fat storage. So the theory is if there's less circulating insulin, the body can't store fat as effectively and you can lose, lose uh, appreciable amounts of body fat. Um, but that theory is yet to be proven uh, scientifically. So I went off on a bit of tangent there. But, uh, <laughs> no, I yeah, loved sorry. it. I loved it, but I'm just trying to, I'm trying to not go off down a tangent and <laughs> keep myself on track. Hi guys, just a quick one. Adverts on the podcast are automated and we have no idea what may or may not play out, much like whatever pops up when you're browsing on the internet. This is an unsponsored podcast. But if I am ever plugging a product, you will know about it. The whole reason why I wanted to start with energy systems and I wanted to go through that kind of thing was because I did really want to get to (laughs) that fifth question about fat loss specifically, because I do think there is still a huge misconception out there that people who want to look better often you know well my clients I should say who have a goal to look better will often ask me about the fat burning zone and then they'll ask often ask me about HIIT training they ask me about um, specific again food groups such as carbohydrates and I really wanted you to kind of touch on having a real performance goal being a real athlete and really having to think about these things and program for these things and actually just being like you know your average joe your gem pop having a goal to look better feel a bit better get a bit healthier you really don't need to be considering kind of these different zones and what exercises are best to have you especially with fat loss look a certain way um but you know now i really wanted to shift onto the book that you've written And so having read the introduction, am I right in thinking that you wrote it really for kind of your students and your peers, more for kind of an advanced audience than kind of like a a Joe Public? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the the book is written for uh, fitness professionals, either people that are training to work in the fitness industry as personal trainers, so students, um, but also people working in the industry as fitness instructors, personal trainers, fitness class instructors 
So it's it's um, written um, on the basis that the reader's got some sort of baseline level of knowledge. And the reason how it came about was, um, the so this is the second edition. And essentially in academia, you get ap- approached by publishers at the start of a semester and they are trying to sell you their books. And they're kind of like, what books do you need? And I said, well, I, ne- I need a personal training book, which is evidence-based. So they looked for it and they said, it, it doesn't exist. Do you fancy putting a proposal together? So essentially the book I originally wrote was for my students. I kind of got tired of marking work and just putting need to include citation. Where is your evidence from this? Where did you get this from? <laughs> so in the end, um, yeah, it, uh, it turned out into a big project of, of writing a textbook. Well, I mean, I, I've obviously only read what you've sent me, but I, I'm already, you know, quite excited to to read the entirety of it. So I feel from what I've read that, that your intention was really to provide some evidence-based scientific expertise, and you you really drive home that word, the expertise to, to an industry that, let's be honest, is incredibly heavy with misinformation and miseducation. Is that accurate? Yeah, that, that, that's um, the theme of the my introduction was this difference between expertise and experience. And that's like where we get a lot of these debates in the fitness industry in particular, is that many training practices and nu- nutrition practices are based off people's experiences, as in, oh, I've done this for 10 years, it's worked for me, it's worked for all my clients. And that's what we call like sort of anecdotal evidence, which it's not to say that that's not worthwhile, that type of evidence, but it's not what we call good quality because as as we know, everyone's an individual. So yes, you might have had results for the past 10 years with a certain amount of your clients, but how many of those clients didn't you get results with? And, and that's the whole point of sort of applied research. So the book is is about using the scientific literature. But one thing I wanted to make clear this time is that... Um, it's not to say that if it hasn't been done scientifically, as in, as in there's not a study for it, that that means that you shouldn't like make a recommendation. And Brad and Anoop go on to talk about this in the evidence-based practice chapter is that being evidence-based doesn't just mean that you've got a study support what you're doing, <laughs> yeah. which um, yeah. <laughs> and that's one, one thing that um, is a bit of a misconception. You're using the the literature, but also your own personal experience and really importantly, the preferences of the client that you're working with, because there's no point in just kind of throwing a program or an, um, a nutrition intervention at someone if, if they're not going to stick to it uh, or if they yeah. don't enjoy it. So it's kind of fusing the client's preferences, the scientific literature and your experience as a practitioner to then produce your intervention, whether that's an exercise or nutrition intervention. I loved it. I, lo- I loved everything about it. And and as somebody who is, you know, really in the trenches <laughs> coaching every day, I, it was really lovely to read that. First of all, yeah, I mean, you know, you talk about some people who say who who aren't qualified, who don't really have that, that kind of much uh, weight behind them. It's not that their advice is wrong. It's just that it's anecdotal and it does come from the school of thought of, oh, well, it works for me, therefore it'll work for everyone. And that's just really, really misguided. And I actually think it also, even though it is anecdotal and that essentially is just experience, I also think it lacks experience. You know, I think you can really tell 
kind of the the professionals who've been working with people for years and years and years and years and years because of answers like it depends or now look this is purely anecdotal but I found that those kind of precursors to answers I think are kind of steeped in experience um and I, I absolutely loved loved the, the kind of the whole intro um it made me want to ask you what are some of the things that you're seeing online and on social media that are really kind of prominent in terms of mistruths and myths in in the health and fitness industry that as an evidence-based kind of expert that you are, you really feel like you're having to repeat yourself a lot and try and shut down or move away from. (laughs) How long have you got? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Give me the most prominent one. I'm sure there are a few. (laughs) We'll probably need, yeah, three or four podcasts. (laughs) this is actually something that I've I've tried to address throughout the book is look, little snippets of corrections or trying to explain why misconceptions exist. And some of them will, I think will surprise some people. Like, for example, you mentioned earlier about the best fat burning exercise. And one <laughs> yeah. thing you've seen over the last decade is uh, high intensity interval training. It's Kind of, you know, you see the hashtag of like torching body fat and things like that. (laughs) It's um, it's actually not true. It's uh, if we're going to pick a best fat burning exercise, actually, there's um, high intensity interval training is no better than anything else. Really, it goes back to creating that energy deficit. So ultimately, if if you want to lose body fat and you're creating an energy deficit then technically you don't need to do any specific type of exercise. Although I would always, as I'm sure you would as well, recommend resistance training for either building or maintaining muscle mass. So that should be, for me, that's kind of like the central pillar of a fat loss program. The idea that the best form of exercise for burning body fat is high intensity interval training. The evidence doesn't support that. So whilst it can burn energy quickly in a short amount of time, making it quite time efficient, in terms of reducing body fat, actually, when we exercise at a high intensity, the preferred fuel is um, actually, carbohydrate. Yeah, carbohydrate. So the body or the muscles burn through that uh, preferentially over over fat. And there's a misconception that if your body is burning fat or using fat, you're losing fat, but you're not. Yes. So <laughs> to create that energy deficit is a long term process. So this idea that doing a couple of high intensity interval training session is going to kind of dramatically change your body composition. Unfortunately, that's that's a big myth. It's it's not the case. <laughs> Otherwise, um, you know, a lot of people will be very lean. <laughs> yeah, the whole of the UK would be shredded because <laughs> yeah. everyone's like, I'm doing hit every day. I don't understand. And I'm like, it's about net energy balance at the end of the exactly. period of time. Exactly yeah. that. And, and on that theme... One of the things that um, has become really popular, which is good because it makes exercise accessible and easy, is body weight training, uh, particularly yes. you know after the lockdowns where a lot of people started doing that. There's kind of a misconception that, that it's brilliant for body fat or burning fat and reducing body fat, but it's no better than any other exercise. And if we look at the kind of research, traditional high-intensity interval training where People are on cyclogometers and treadmill. And nobody's actually doing hit. Like nobody, that you have exactly. to be a professional athlete in a very specific environment with specific equipment to actually be doing real hit training. Yeah, and, and this is one of the sort of breakouts that I did in the book is, is about that in, in actual fact. If you're just doing 20 minutes of hit 
bodyweight style, that's great for health benefits, but it's not necessarily going to be better for sort of burning body fat. Yeah, and I love that you say that, look, it's healthy and it's a good thing to do. So still to this day, I have so many female clients and especially broader audience from social media who are genuinely still convinced that the best way to get the body of their dreams is to do, you know, 20 burpees at home with an online workout or a book and not to get in the gym or just to invest in just some just some weights and to start to start really resistance training with with kind of additional additional weight and it's true like there are so many times where I've wanted to say like that is preferable in terms of I want to look toned you know we know toning isn't a thing it's added muscle mass and reduced body fat and people say this a lot and I'm like well then you're going to have better luck if you start lifting weights and we look at your calories we look at your intake then it is doing 20 burpees at home but then I always stop myself because I'm like well at least they're doing something do you know what I mean like at least they're doing something healthy and I I feel like I always have to stop myself from kind of bashing any form of exercise because ultimately it's all great I I, I completely agree and I'm exactly the same I'd, I'd hate for anyone to take away and think oh, there's no point in doing it if, if I'm not going to lose body fat and, and lose weight. I always say that you should do exercise for the health benefits because they're independent. Most of the benefits are independent of uh, your body weight. So that just means ev- even if you don't lose any weight, you've got these improvements in your aerobic fitness, improvements in your metabolic health. So your risk of things like hypertension or high blood pressure, diabetes, they decrease just through regular exercise or even just physical activity, getting out and being active. So yeah. that that's one of the other messages I, I hope came through in the book is that people shouldn't be discouraged from exercise just because their um, weight isn't changing, particularly yeah. if it's just scale weight, because that's another aspect is, is body composition. You could be losing body fat, but your scale weight doesn't change. You might have actually had an increase in lean mass, so through an increase in muscle mass, drop some body fat. But if you're only using going off that one number off the scales, it can be misleading. And I've had clients like this where they've said, my um, weight has gone up a little bit, but actually my clothes fit me much better. And, yeah. and actually I, I feel like in the mirror, I look leaner. And, and that's what's happening, which is why clients would come to me for um, a body composition test. So they know roughly sort of how much body fat they they've lost um and they're not just going off like the the number on the scale yeah and just a caveat to that if in case anyone's listening to that and being like oh i'll jump on the body composition scale at the gym don't jump on the body composition scale at the gym because it's not accurate so paul's a professional and an expert so uh go to an expert you're probably going to get a much more accurate reading So back to the book, you have some amazing contributors. Um, I already mentioned Dr. Eric Helms, but there are others who are equally impressive on there, such as Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, who's actually coming on the podcast in a few weeks. I'm very excited and slightly nervous. <laughs> that would be a great guest. He's like, just drop, drops knowledge bombs left, right and centre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, he, he's the blitz of, uh, of what we do in terms of knowledge bombs. Um, you also have Gary Mendoza on there, who I love as well, um, in terms of kind of like client application to evidence-based approaching. He's fantastic. And so many others as well. How did you go about choosing your contributors and giving them their specific topics? And was it was it easy or difficult to get them to 
to kind of jump on board? Uh, I was surprised, really. I mean, I think that the fact that I'd uh, produced a textbook already gave me some sort of leverage and credibility when approaching them. I think if this had been the first edition, it might have been a bit more more difficult. Uh, but essentially, uh, it was just all people that uh, whose work I've followed for years, um, seen them speak at conferences, spoken to a few of them in person. And yeah, it was kind of like the book that I wanted to read when I was training and uh, as um, sort of an undergraduate. So I, I just approached them and um, said, look, I'm putting together this book. It's an evidence-based personal training book. It's essentially like what I, wa- I wanted out of the book is is like there's, there's quite a few good, really well-written sports science book, but they're just heavily focused on working with athletes. And yes. What I wanted to do was produce a book which was more geared towards working with a range of different types of population, not just athletes. So, yeah, I just approached them individually. And to my surprise, most of them were saying, yeah, that that sounds great. I thought it might be less work than the the previous version in terms of because I've got these experts writing writing these large chapters for me. But as as going through the editing process, it's it's no quicker because um, everyone writes differently and most people will go over the word count. And then you're in a quite difficult position of, questioning an expert so someone like um, Brad Schoenfeld's written me a chapter and I'm going is, is this right I'd like a bit more you're almost kind of marking their work you feel a bit uneasy about it at first but <laughs> they're cool with it because you know editing is is kind of where you get to in these books I mean mo- most chapters you'll edit at least eight times before you get yeah. to close to the finished version I'm super excited to read the whole thing. The last time I was this excited to do anything is that I think um, Lane Norton and Dr. Bill Campbell are going to do like a little course together for for professionals to kind of really actually the bit that Brad Schoenfeld contributed to your book. I think it's the same kind of premise of like science, the application for coaches for, for and they're, they're still setting it up now. And, and Bill, Dr. Bill Campbell invited me to, to basically partake in it. And I was like, okay. And I'm, I'm really excited about that, but I'm equally excited to read the entirety of this book. I love Paul, how you said in the introduction about evidence-based practice and singular scientific studies being referred to as indisputable fact, especially on social media, when actually one single study doesn't really prove much at all, and there are often counter studies to consider also. You say that it's only really when you have a full body of meta-analysis that you can really reach more accurate kind of scientific conclusions. Please, can you just talk about this a little bit so my audience understand uh, a little bit more about what to take on as real fact versus what is merely just kind of a piece of the puzzle yeah that that's where it gets re- it's really difficult now because there um you can make an argument for pretty much anything using scientific evidence if yeah. you what, <laughs> it's what's known in in academia as cherry picking where you say you've got a particular stance um you will only select the evidence that supports that so it's like a form of confirmation bias um but you can do it deliberately to to kind of write there uh, the narrative that you want. Um, so the best kind of, or the highest level of evidence that we look for, or I should say most reliable is a meta-analysis. When the research accumulates and we get studies which have been done on a similar theme, what we can do is we can pull all of that data together to produce a stronger overall conclusion. And, and that's essentially what a, a meta-analysis is. And through pooling all of the data from different studies together, it gives us um, an effect size, as in does, for example, 
um, creatine supplementation help improve or increase muscle mass compared to placebo? Uh, yes, it does. And, and that's been shown in individual studies, but also when we group them together and do the meta-analysis, then um, it's been shown to have a significant effect. So with a meta-analysis, well, there shouldn't be any cherry picking. So you put, you look at the data in its entirety to produce an overall conclusion. And at the end of that, there might be a small effect. It's probably worth the intervention, depending on the population, or there might be no effect, in which case then it's it, whatever the, the intervention is, is probably not worth um, doing. But that said, this is where you get the caveats. of Whenever in science, typically we're, all studies report the mean or the group average response. Yeah. And there are outliers. So some people respond much better than others to a particular intervention. Um, so if we got two people, give them the same training program, same diet, one might lose more body fat than the other because of the individual variation. So we've got that. Um, so that's where studies can get clouded, where um, a couple of outliers can bring the average response down so there's no effect. So it's it's preferable to look at a meta-analysis, so look at the data in its entirety. And essentially that's what these chapters and these experts that have contributed to or written the chapters of the book have looked at all of the evidence and not just kind of slanted it based on their pre-existing beliefs. Yeah, it's, it's such an important thing, not only just for everybody like on social media, but also for professionals, like not to get too caught up in your own echo chamber, which I am seeing a lot of professionals, especially on social media doing, like just not continuing to ask questions. And again, you kind of touch on this in the intro. That's not real science. Science is continuing to question, continuing to dig deeper, come up with kind of new I don't know, viewpoints and, and thoughts on matters and, and then researching them. Like I keep saying, I'm just repeating myself now. I'm so excited to read the entirety of it. Um, My, my real last question for you, because I think that this is interesting for, for me as a professional and, and also for my audience who, you know, I'm sure a lot of them have coaches and PTs themselves. Um, Talk to me finally about kind of scientific evidence, the client application, Um, you know, science be practice. But just because the science says one thing, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that that one thing is going to work for even one client, let alone every client. Yeah, so the the science, the scientific evidence gives us a broad idea if something is likely to be effective. It doesn't guarantee us that it is going to be effective uh, for that individual. And this is the point I was making earlier about not just relying on scientific evidence because sometimes there might not be that evidence uh, out there the studies might not have been done this is often a comeback i would get from from coaches that would say well we've been doing that for years and the science has only just proven this but the science is kind of always behind in that respect when it comes to training and and nutrition is because usually the studies are based on what's being done in in the in practice but my comeback to coaches is, yeah, but how many things have you thrown out that you used to do based off experience? Because the science shows us that that doesn't work. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it does frustrate people when you kind of talk about studies and they say, well, my client is an N of one. But if, if there's enough evidence, like a meta-analysis on something, your client is likely to fall, have a, a similar response to the um, that meta-analysis because it's pulled all the data together. But that's yeah. not to say 
for sure this is going to work for them, but it, it just means we're a little bit more certain sure. than had we not got the meta-analysis. The the flip side is, is doing it completely anecdotally, like I mentioned earlier, of going, well, the science is behind. I've been doing this for, for years. Um, my clients have had great results. It could be a complete fluke, you know, that yeah. <laughs> that's happening. Yeah. Uh, and it could be confirmation bias that you're just looking at the clients that have responded well and, and maybe not actually focusing on the ones that didn't respond so well. Yeah. So when you're using the evidence, it is important to combine it with your experiences, but crucially as well with the preferences of that individual. The science might say one approach seems to be better than the other, but if your athlete doesn't buy into that, and particularly if they're worth millions and millions of pounds, and you, are you going to stake you know, your uh, whole sort of reputation on, on trying to get them to do something that they're either not keen on or they don't believe in? So there is a, there's a really important balance to be had of, of, yes, using the science to, and this is why I say, inform your practice, not dictate it. I love it. I love it that you touched on that. And I think this is that, you know, you say you said something in the intro that I say all the time, which is like the personal and personal training is a huge part of it. It's not always it doesn't always just come down to data. And and I think a lot of people, I don't know, I think they ride off into the sunset having rants on social media based on scientific evidence. And, you know, those people aren't really coaching because they never, ever, ever talk about client application. And it's such a melting pot of psychology v physiology. And and I think, yeah, that really it comes from it comes from both qualification and experience. And guys, everyone, I, I really recommend like when this when this book is out and ready that um, if you're really interested in this kind of thing, that you give it a read, even if it's just to even if it's just to kind of to think about some of the some of the things that you and all these amazing experts you've contributed are touching on. Um, I, I want to say thank you so much for for coming on. And I would love to have you back on down the line. Do you want to just tell everybody where they can find you, promote anything at all you want to promote? And if you want to leave anybody with anything to think about, do that too. Firstly, thanks very much for having me on. Um, like I mentioned before we came on air, I work in mostly in academia where a lot of the time we kind of we go to conferences and we speak amongst ourselves but the research we're speaking at about doesn't reach the end user like the people it's designed for so coming on to like podcasts like yours it's really um i'm re- really uh, grateful because it helps to kind of get the get the message out and communicate the science that we're um producing um good in terms of um finding info out on the on the book and what i've done i don't really have um <laughs> anything to to sell it i mean even the book it's um it's an academic textbook so yeah uh, it, it's certainly not not uh, i didn't do it for any financial gain you're not, you're not gonna get any big payday from it <laughs> no, no unfortunately not which um kind of blows my students mind they're like why, why would you write something and hardly get anything back but it's academics bro (laughs) exactly yeah yeah it's publication (laughs) um so if you want any details on the book it's called uh, advanced personal training science to practice Uh, it's published by routledge and i'll include a link on my website which is p huff spelled h-o-u-g-h dot co dot uk and i'll include uh, a link on there to so you can help find the book uh, there's a few articles on there that I've written and blogs. Um, Where can people find you on Instagram? Because I've just started following you and I love it. Uh, that is the Hoff 
it's an old nickname that's that's stuck and one of the few handles that was available with my name. So that is um, the uh, underscore and then it's H-0-U-G-H. Uh, but I think if you just put in my name, Paul Huff, it, uh, yeah. that's probably easier. Uh, the same same on Twitter as well. Yeah, ugh. everyone, can we just get, can we just boycott Twitter? Can we just shut it down? Like talk about echo chambers like and confirmation bias. It's like the hotbed of like misinformation. <laughs> It, it really is, yeah. It's it's, it's a dangerous <laughs> it place to be, and that's what actually one bit of advice I give to clients when they say, "What would you recommend in terms of uh, finding out information on fitness and nutrition?" And I'll be like, "Get off Twitter." <laughs> and that's Get off from, Twitter. That's from someone that posts on Twitter, because um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's actually scary some of the information that gets put out there on. on, on it's that. terrifying, but also like just all social media, like just get on PubMed, get off social media and do some actual reading and we'd all be a bit better off. But um, honestly, Paul, thank you so much for coming on. It's been such no a pleasure and I hope everybody really uh, got something from that. I'm sure you did. I know I did. And join us next week when we will have another brilliant guest on the podcast. Podcast Network.